proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I am your host, as well as a pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen. And each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. And in today's podcast, we have Tanner Klein. Tanner is the pastor of Hopewell Presbyterian Church in Covington, Georgia. Tanner, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Tanner and I go way back. Uh, we went to seminary together at RTS there in Charlotte, North Carolina. We had the blessing of sitting under uh, Dr. Kelly for systematics theology, as well as uh, Bob Kara, amongst other uh, fine uh, educators there. And so, Tanner, uh, why don't you just give the people uh, just a quick 30 seconds bio of who you are and what you've been up to? Yeah, it's great. Um, was saved by God's grace at an early age. Um, what felt a call to ministry, particularly preaching, uh, around the ninth grade. I uh, knew I felt called to, to to be a communicator of the truth of God's word around the ninth grade. Um, I've been a youth pastor, been an associate pastor, and have been involved somewhat in in church revitalization and revitalization efforts since really uh, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, was part of a crash and burn experience in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, several years ago, and over the last four and a half, five years, been the pastor of Hopewell uh, Presbyterian Church here in Covington, Georgia, and we're part of the ARP, the Associate Reformed uh, Presbyterian Church. But uh, enjoying rural Georgia, uh, we put the UR in rural Georgia, and uh, we are enjoying our experience here. So you are very, very rural is what you're trying to get across to my li- listeners. Describe what Covington, Georgia is or looks like. You have probably seen uh, downtown Covington, Georgia in numerous movies uh, or television shows, and you didn't realize it. Uh, years ago, In the Heat of the Night was filmed here in Covington, Georgia. Uh, the first two episodes of The Dukes of Hazard uh, were filmed here. Uh, now the vampire di- vampire diaries are filmed here. Uh, they filmed the the most recent uh, Footloose movie. So you've probably seen our courthouse in uh, numerous movies and just didn't realize it. Uh, also, my cousin Vinny was filmed here. So it is the typical when they say we're going down to the square. Uh, it is a square, and you walk around it, drive around it. It's cute. It's quaint. It's lovable. It's southern. Uh, we love it here. Now, I got to ask you, you, were you ever a, a stand-up extra in any of those movies? I mean, come on, man. All those movies being shot there, TV shows, and uh, any, any, uh, any uh, Hollywood appearances? I have not been, though. I have a friend that was in The Vampire Diaries. He posed as a bartender in, in a couple of episodes. Uh, but I did have the opportunity to sit next to Cooter uh, in, in a local coffee shop down here and didn't realize it till he was, uh, he had eaten the meal with his wife and they had left. So, uh, does he smell as bad as he looks? 
<laughs> no, he was he was well shaven. He, he he had bathed at least far as I could tell. <laughs> well, that's that's good news. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, getting to uh, the serious side of your own journey, um, why don't you just give us a little quick story of how you came into Reformed theology, specifically confessional doctrine? Absolutely. My experience was very much a Jonah experience. Um, what happened, I was uh, working at a, at a Presbyterian church. It was actually an EPC church, and I was kind of the middle school guy, and uh, the high school guy was taking the, the youth group through the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, for a Bible study on Sunday evenings. And, and <laughs> it was a great time, but I remember just being shocked at some of the teaching and just getting real nervous. And so I had a Jonah, a Jonah experience where I ran as far and fast in the opposite direction as I possibly could. Uh, but eventually that same youth pastor and the, and the guy who was the pastor of that church, um, they took me out to Shoney's one day and uh, they, they were aware of some of the teaching I was receiving at my, at my college. And they just let me know uh, in, in a, a lunch time at a Shoney's buffet that I had been uh, influenced by some higher critical thinkers, and uh, they're really praying over me and praying for me. And, and the Holy Spirit just convicted me uh, of the truth of uh, particularly uh, five points of Calvinism, um, just really went into the book of Romans and, and just saw how the Old and New Testament, everything was just beginning co to connect. And so that was really my uh, my journey into the Reformed faith and, and and particularly into confessionalism as well. Now, how did you know or when did you know that you were called to be a minister? It was really the ninth grade. I, I, well, in the ninth grade, I, I knew I was called to be a communicator of the truth of God's Word. I, was that going to be a youth pastor? Was that going to be a, a, you know, a teacher, a professor, a, a, a pastor? I, I didn't know exactly... The, the slant on that. Just over the years, I found out that I just really had a heart for pastoral ministry. As messy as people can be, um, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. I, I just enjoy it. I enjoy getting in the mess and being in the mess and, and, and hoping and praying and seeing God, God's grace change people. And, and let's jump forward to your present day. Now you're serving at Hopewell, a Presbyterian church, and that is a revitalization um, there in Covington, Georgia. What was Hopewell like before you, prior to you? Yeah, uh, interesting story. Um, the pastor before me, his name is Jeff Jacobs. He's a great guy. He, the Lord actually convinced him, uh, used him to convince me to come here. Uh, so we had a very good transition between Jeff and myself. When Jeff came to Hopewell, he served here about eight to ten years. And the, this is his description of Hopewell at the time. They were about ready to close their doors. Uh, the Presbytery had gotten involved and, and actually strongly considered just shutting the, the church down. And so for all of Jeff's tenure here, he said, you know, week to week, the question was, are we going to keep the doors open? And when, when he, and his, he and his wife worked very hard here, and when they left, they felt like they got the church floating, was kind of the way he described it to me. And he just said, Tanner, we need somebody to come in, and we need somebody to hit the ground running, because if we wait too long, if we go too slow, we're just going to begin to take on water again. And so we need somebody that'll help us pick up some momentum so it's not, are we going to sink, are we going to swim 
but uh, well, let's move this thing along. And so Jeff convinced me to come. The Lord used him to convince me to come, uh, along with just falling in love with the people here. Uh, and and Lord's blessed us since then. Now, now in taking over a church like that, now how, I guess my first question is, how old was Hopewell when you started uh, your pastorate there? It was established in 1830. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and when we came here, our first Sunday, we had 25 people in attendance. And we're probably averaging about, about 80 people a Sunday now. Uh, we've seen professions of faith. We've had baptisms. Uh, obviously, several people join. Special occasions, you know, during Advent, uh, candlelight services, Easter, we'll have well over 115, 120 people. Um, so, and, and that's and those and those are huge numbers for a rural context, correct? Yes, sir. Particularly our sanctuary. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, on the the big Sundays, you kind of cross your fingers and hope that the you know the, the fire department doesn't come to church that day because uh, you know <laughs> you kind of got everybody uh, you know doubled up sitting on each other's lap in the in the choir loft. So. Uh, but but yeah, for us, those are big numbers. You know, kind of our dream is is to get us to the point where we're averaging 80 a Sunday, and and really, uh, you know, 108 probably maxes us out in terms of attendance. We're probably at that 75, 80 percent capacity right now, uh, and, and hopefully the next year or two, be thinking about you know, or, or before then, should we be going to two services? So that's where we're at right now. Well, let's spend some time talking about how you went from 25 people to an average of just under 80. What, what types of things uh, did you tackle first as an incoming pastor who's being passed the baton by Pastor Jeff, who basically said, I need you to come in like a bulldozer and hit the ground running? I mean, I, those, are, those are my words, but, but describe those first couple of years and the things you began to tackle. Well, you know, ultimately, it wasn't, obviously wasn't, wasn't me. It was just the Holy Spirit moving. Uh, I'd like to share with you, I, you know, I had a crash and burn experience in Asheville, and we can talk about that maybe if we've got the time. But here's what was healthy. Uh, we had uh, had a very deep, uh, long conversation with the senior uh, elder here. And uh, jokingly in the presbytery, we call him the boss elder because uh, he's just got so much tenure here. But but this is this is the healthy situation I came into. He said to me, he's in his 80s. He said, Tanner, I would rather us. And he said us. So it wasn't all on me. He said, I would rather us try and fail than fail to try. Wow. That was huge. Yeah. Because I have the senior member and the senior elder of the church essentially give me a large blank check and say, let's, let's go for it. How, is, just, how important is that for a new guy coming in to a pastorate, into an established church, especially you think about how old your church is and the family uh, lineages that have probably been passed down, that they're giving you that blank check? Is that something that a young guy should expect walking in, or is that something that is just very, very odd and don't expect that? It's very unique, and it, and it was honestly very. Uh, it was it was a Holy Spirit transformation in this gentleman's life because you know up to this point he didn't get the term boss elder for nothing. Um, you know he 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 kind of set some uh, a lot of boundaries what could and could not be done. 
uh, kind of relationally what happened in the background is his wife just fell in love with me and my wife and just kind of adopted us as her, her grandchildren she never had. Uh, so that, that relational capital, we were, we were able to draw off of that, you know, very practically in a lot of ways. But it was huge because I didn't have essentially the, you, you know, in a rural setting like this, you have to earn respect. It's very hard earned and very easy to lose. But with him standing up and saying things like that and, and the church knowing, you know, as I, I, remember, I remember the first year, every decision I made and everything I did, I could, I could visibly see people in the church smile at me and then look at my boss elder. <laughs> For approval, of course. Exactly. And, and, and then he would just grin and he'd say, well, if Tanner feels like that needs to be done, well, I'm on board, you know. Uh, and so there were a lot of things like that. I remember it took about a year. It took about two, two and a half years before people stopped visibly looking at him for approval. And then, you know, during that time, we we, uh, we brought some some new elders on as well. So we went from having two elders to four elders. And that helped as well because it was definitely the feeling in the church that it's not just one guy running the show or, or a new pastor running the show, but, but we're a team in this together. And that was huge. What were some of the things you needed to do to get the people to begin to think about outreach, uh, mission? Um, because I'm, I'm assuming if they had been 25 for some time that, well, Jeff maybe was introducing them to that concept, it, going from 25 to tripling that number, even to say it's 75, is, is, is astounding in the sense of outreach and mission. So describe some of that for us. Yeah, uh, I would. This would be my piece of advice to people. It's much easier to make negotiations on the front end of your call than in the midst of your call. Uh, you actually have more leverage if if they know you're the guy coming in and you're the guy they want. Um, then you can you can have a lot more leverage. So, for example, um, you know that my boss elder says, "Let's try and fail than rather fail to try." Well, he he put his money where his mouth was, and so he gave me a budget of $5,000 a year for outreach. Yeah, which was huge. And I think we need, we need to take that in perspective because a lot of guys who are listening to this may be coming from larger churches or larger uh, denominations that aren't in a rural context. And how much, what percentage of that was your budget of uh, 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 $5,000 was what percentage? We probably had probably, um, I can't, uh, <laughs> I'm from West Virginia, man. I can't do percentages. <laughs> You do have you do have front teeth, right? <laughs> now I do, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, probably our our budget was about eighty five thousand that first year. It's probably over a hundred thousand dollars now. Okay, um, but yeah, that was huge. You know, I haven't, I didn't, I've never spent it all, and we pull stuff for like vacation Bible school out of that. Probably the closest I've ever come to spending it is half. So I'm spending $2,500. But here's what happens. You know what happens at budget meetings every year, don't you? I mean, everybody knows. Everybody takes a look at what they spent last year. And then, you know, if you didn't spend it all, then they cut your money. You know what I mean? Like, well, we put down 5000 last year. You only spent 2000 So we're only going to give you 2000 this year. Well, every year, uh, my boss elder says, no, outreach is important to us. We're a revitalization effort. It's important to Tanner. So we leave it there. And we're grateful that he's a good steward of it and that he doesn't spend it all. So that's significant. So that, that was significant, having those funds there, having the, uh, the church put the money where their mouth is. The other thing that happened is basically the, the sermon I preached as I was candidating, 
uh, is I preached a vision sermon, and, and I just smiled at the church. I said, here's the deal. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done here, but I also think we can have a lot of fun doing it together. You know, and, and I grinned, and, and they knew, they could sense the excitement in me and my wife, but they knew, you know, in, in a kind, fun way of, okay, you know, if we call him, we've got a lot of work to do. He's not going to let us sit around. We've got a lot of work to do. But we've done a lot of, I guess, what you'd call um, servant evangelism, just being out in the community, trying to make contacts. Um, the Lord has always blessed us through that, but he keeps us humble. You know, for example, if we hand out 100 bottles of water uh, at a local concert on the square, no one from that concert will come and visit our church in the next week or two. I mean, they just won't. But God honors the sowing and reaping principle, I believe. And so a week or two later, never fails. We'll have a family visit the church out of nowhere. And so I feel like God's honoring our sowing and reaping and our outreach. But he keeps us humble to know it's not us doing it, but it's him, you know, bringing the blessing. That's 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 a great truth that you're bringing forward. I I think so many times we expect results from a specific action where God is really checking our heart and are we willing to invest in what God has called us to, which is to reach our neighbor. And it's not necessarily that he uses that mechanism. Um, and, and let's be honest, most churches are pragmatic. Does it work? And if it works, let's do it. If it doesn't work, don't do it. And what you're saying is, no, God's more interested in the heart. And as we step out in faith, he honors the heart, not not necessarily the mechanism. Amen. God honor, God always honors faithfulness. It may not be in the way that we want to see it, and it may not be the fruit that we want to see or the amount of fruit that we want to see, but God always honors faithfulness. And so the the objective for us as church planters and pastors and anybody, a churchman that's work, working in revitalization, our goal is to be faithful. That's our task. Let's let's probe a little deeper in this idea of, of the changes that we're beginning at, at Hopewell. And the, one of the questions, I guess, is what major problems did you encounter? What were some of the big struggles that you faced in this revitalization? Uh, one is our location. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, one obstacle I faced with the session is they wanted me to be in my office eight to five every day. And I mean, I mean, literally, I'm telling you, everybody on this street, there are four homes on this street. Everyone's related to the church except one. And I mean, last week I herded cattle when I came out of my back door because the cattle got loose in the, the cow pasture beside us. I mean, we are rural Georgia. And so... <laughs> You are you are living the pastor's dream, you know. We all want to be hurting herding sheep, but you're herding cattle, which are even bigger than sheep. So, you know, that's awesome. They're more faithful than some of our members. I mean, I, I've asked, can we add them to the non-communicant role? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> is that how is that how you get your numbers stacked, buddy? <laughs> Whatever it takes. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I tell you honestly, what I had to do with my schedule, you know, is is I intentionally plan an hour and a half a day to two hours a day that I, that I'm definitely trying to be in the community or investing in a, in a circle of influence or a couple of circles of influence that I can just meet new people and build relationships and then 
add them to my daily prayer list. And then hopefully over the next six months to a year, something's going to happen, you know, in their life that, um, so for example, these are just kind of some pragmatic, simple things. Uh, you know, I go to the gym about six days a week. I wish I had proof of it, but, uh, but you know, I go there, probably invest an hour, hour and a half there a day. The whole point is to try to be healthy and build relationships. And so you know, I'll add some of those people that I, that I meet uh, to my prayer list and, you know, simple thing you can do in the South is you can tell somebody, God bless them, you know, hope you have a blessed day. And how they respond to that lets, lets you know how open they are to spiritual conversations, believe it or not. Uh, when they say, oh, thank you. I mean, if they're very, very touched by you saying, I hope you have a blessed day. I hope the Lord blesses you today. Then you know, okay, next time I can open up, you know, and, and, and dig a little bit deeper and they're going to be a lot more receptive. Uh Make a habit of telling somebody, hey, how'd you on my mind this today? Was praying for you or ask them, hey, is there any way I could be praying for you? And and we've seen some fruit from there. Now, it's taken four years for me to even see somebody visit the church from the gym. I've been going you know, every day, almost every day for four years. But we've had three families visit, uh, one that has uh, begun to stick at Hopewell. And, and so you just I want to model for the church what I want them to be doing every day. And, and I think God will honor that if I'm faithful to it. So obviously a location and then the expectancy that you're going to sit in an office for nine hours a day. Well, what other type of major conflicts or major issues do you see in revitalization? There's a little bit of a change in the guard um, that I had one of my elders say this uh, last week. He said, you know, he said, we always thought of ourselves as a friendly church. But now looking back 30 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe it was kind of a cold place to be. Uh, so, for example, one thing that's been difficult for some of the elders to come um, come to grips with used to be, you know, back in 1950 when people when people's foot hit the sanctuary door, everybody was quiet. Now there's conversation. You know, almost have to herd the cattle to, to to do the call to worship, but that was a hard thing for our elders to come to grips with. And I I remember in a session meeting just having to say they were like, "Boy, it used to be quiet around here." And I was like, "Well, because nobody was here." I mean, I mean, that's why it was quiet. Now people are here, and now people they like each other. I mean, we there's genuine love for one another. So that was a little bit of an obstacle uh, having to deal with. And there's always people conflicts, you know, in a small rural town like this. If one person gets mad and leaves the church, I mean, you know, they could take 10 people. They could take 20 people with them. And we've had that happen. You know, uh, when I say we're averaging, I mean, we could have been averaging 100, 105. But we've had we've had people leave and, and try to take other people with them and, and, and sometimes be successful in that. And But that's just all part of the part of the experience is what I say. <laughs> what what did the what did your leadership change begin to look like? You said you brought on some new elders. Um, was there things you had to begin to to embed there at Hopewell with this with this additional leadership or even raising guys up? Yeah, I mean, here's what we here's what we discovered. I was very blessed in this regard. The need really put the need for for additional elders really put the pressure on us. To say, okay, we need some elders. We and so we began praying. You know, Lord, show us if there's any guys among us that are probably qualified for this. You know, and what I feel like we began realizing with the two elders we have is that there were some men among us already that were 
qualified, but they just hadn't been given an opportunity. And so that was, that was significant for us. So I really, I was blessed in that way. I mean, we, we did an officer training and all that. I want you to think we didn't do that. We did do that. But what we began to recognize is that there have been some men among us that were qualified, but just haven't been given the opportunity. Isn't, isn't that kind of what First Corinthians chapter 12 was really saying, is that God, God has those, those, the, the parts of the body that we need, and, and they're present. A lot of times we're just, we're not seeing it. We're, That's we're not, it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I remember. I remember. What, uh, you know, I met with the guys that well, I really did pray about for, probably for about six months, and, and just had the Lord just began kind of laying some guys on my heart. And so, I, you know, I remember asking each one of them kind of go out to lunch or or meet with me for coffee, and I just said, "Hey, I've been praying about you. I want you to pray about this. Could the Lord be calling you?" And I remember one of the one of the new elders we have. I remember him taking me out to Mexican, and I just thought, okay, he's going to buy me lunch because he just wants to tell me no way, no how. And um, so I'm just sitting there, you know, kind of waiting to be told no, and that he didn't want to have any part of it. And, and I remember before our drinks even came, he said, you know, when you asked me to, what I serve, he said the Lord had already been churning in my heart that I needed to serve in this way. Wow. But I just need somebody to recognize it. Uh, so it was powerful, man. It was powerful. Now, yeah. now let's let's look at another aspect of oftentimes in revitalization. Not only do you have the evangelistic out aspect of it and and the leadership, there's other theological changes that need to occur. Why a lot of churches have stunted in their growth and development. Did you discover any of that? There is an epidemic in our denomination that assumes if you were born on the back seat, back pew of an ARP church, that that's what makes you an ARP. And, and sometimes it has nothing to do with theology. Sometimes it has nothing to do with a personal walk with Christ. It's just, did you grow up ARP? So we had, that was a major obstacle uh, that we had to, to deal with to say, you know, just because you were born in the church and you were raised in the church doesn't even mean that you're a follower of Christ. It doesn't mean you're regenerate. And so, you know, we had to analyze that and walk with that. And, and it was a major change. I mean, the majority of our people in our church did not grow up in our denomination. They, they were either raised, you know, Baptist or Methodist. We have a few Roman Catholics that, that have, have come over with us, and they're exciting because uh, they, they say, hey, I like how we're just opening up the Bible and you're just preaching through a book. Like, this is cool. Um, so that's fun to see, but that was a major obstacle for us is what makes us an ARP or what makes us a part of this church. It has to do with our doctrine, not just my family tree, if that makes sense. Would you say that um, having the confession helps you in that theological um, kind of dusting it off? Did you find yourself just dusting it off or was it, no, theologically they were, they were, they were Presbyterian, but they just didn't know it. I mean, how would you define that? Well, I'd say we're, we're in a discipleship process with that right now. I think we've got some people that maybe thought they were ARPs, but really they're, <laughs> they're really Baptists. <laughs> you know, like I remember preaching through the book of Revelation and I realized, okay, half my congregation is premillennial dispensational and they don't even realize it, you know. Um, you know, for example, I remember teaching through the book of Revelation on Wednesday night. I had like a two-week introduction. And both weeks of the introduction, I was like, so— 
I don't believe in a rapture. Here's why I don't. And so, you know, when you get aggravated and wonder when we're getting to the rapture part, remember, I'm just going to say, you know, a lot of people I love and love Jesus believe in that, but, but I don't think it's accurate. And then we're like eight weeks in and I'm still getting the question. When do we get to the rapture? <laughs> oh, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You know? <laughs> so, you know, uh, discipleship is a process. And um, you know, we're still in the midst of that. I think what helps us being confessional is we have something to point to. And just in transparency and honesty, say this, like it or not like it, this is what we believe. Right, right. And, and I think people appreciate that transparency and that honesty, even if they don't agree with it. Sure. You know, you you've alluded in in to your time in a- a- Asheville. Um, let Let's go back to that journey because I think that really allows the listener to understand the victory that Christ has bought in Hopewell. When you look back at the struggles you faced when you tried revitalization there. Do you mind sharing that story? Uh, yeah, I don't mind too at all. Um, uh, two things I'd say from the offset about my call to Asheville is that uh, in looking back, I think God genuinely called me there and I was arrogant enough to go. Um, <laughs> it's kind of my take. It was a church that had dwindled down to only four people in attendance. Uh, they were all women. I mean, they had a provisional session. Now, I wasn't stupid because I'm, I'm looking at the numbers saying, okay, I don't want to starve to death. Now, what had happened there is they had sold their downtown property uh, to a hotel chain, and they had about a million, million and a half dollars in the bank. So I knew that I, knew that I could go in uh, and, and give myself a three- to five-year window and and try to make something happen there, you know. So so I knew we weren't going to starve, which was a good thing. Um, but what happened was the, the presbytery wanted to go. Well, some of the people in the church wanted to go ahead and build a building, and and they wanted to build a a modular church building that was only going to seat like forty people. Uh, and so I had to go there and kind of put the brakes on that, uh, which was very difficult. But to give you an idea of the blessing of Hopewell. This, this church in Asheville had a million and a half dollars in the bank. Do you know how much money they gave me for not just outreach, but a total budget my first year? $500. Wow. $500. I mean, that wouldn't pay for postage stamps, probably where I'm at now. We do a lot of mailings and stuff and follow up. And so what happened that first year, uh, Jennifer and I, we actually sunk money we had in savings uh, in to fund the ministry while the church had over a million dollars in the bank. Wow. What happened there is we grew from about four to about probably about 25 or 30 while we were there. Uh, I laugh, you know, talk about God keeping you humble. I tore my ACL while I was there. And, and the week that we grew the most was when I had my ACL surgery. Um, 
So I preached in a cast and I had to sit down. I wasn't trying to go Andy Stanley on him. I just literally couldn't stand up. And uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I remember all these college students flocked that week because they were like, this guy's got to be insane. He just had ACL reconstruction and he's preaching on Sunday. But uh, the church got mad because we had a lot of college students coming. I just thought it was good to have people. I mean, just warm bodies was a good thing to have in the church. Um, but what happened is when the economy, you know, fell in, in, in about 2008, a lot of those young families moved due to jobs and loss of jobs and the wheels came off. We stayed there for about another year, year and a half, but we were never really able to get the wheels back on. Um, the way it was set up, you know, theoretically, I could probably still be the pastor there. Uh, but just in integrity and character, you know, after about three and a half, four years of trying to give it a go. It just looked like it wasn't a go. And so um, I really kind of, I made the call. Let's pull the plug. I wept. I cried uh, when we, when we, you know, when we closed the church. I hadn't closed, I hadn't cried that much since when my dad died. It, it hurt. It was the death of a dream and it hurt a lot. Um, but to show you how God moves, uh, there's a new guy in Asheville now, and he's doing a great job, and he's a much better fit for that area uh, than I could ever be. Don't you think that the idea that you wept over that congregation shows your heart as a shepherd? I mean, I, I'm not asking you to speak to that, but I, I'm, to my listeners, how many pastors weep at a difficult situation. And I think it shows the, the character of that pastor when he has to walk away, when he has to close the door. And you, you said a death of a dream, and I know that you were passionate about it, but the death of a dream for God's kingdom, not for your kingdom. And I think that's a beautiful picture of the heart that only Christ can give us and that you, you, you valued uh, to be his under shepherd there in Asheville. But then God used that to grow you for the work you're now in and to see what you're, you know, God is doing. I'll give God all the credit for what he, God is doing through you in hope. Hopewell is just absolutely amazing. So I, I personally, I knowing you and knowing your passion and knowing your giftedness, I'm just so encouraged by your story because I think it's, it's a beautiful picture for all of us. I appreciate it. You know, I read a, a book by Randy Pope when we were in seminary I think it was originally called the prevailing church, but now it's called, I think the intentional church. Right. And so I joke and say, Randy Pope ruined my life. Uh, <laughs> uh, but actually, I mean, I really respect Randy and, and his heart for discipleship, as you can imagine. But, but there's a quote in there. I don't think it's original from Randy. He's quoting somebody that says, dream a dream so big that it's doomed to failure unless God is in it. Hmm. And that resonated with me. Um, and, and honestly, what, what led me to just have this, I still wrestle, honestly, if I've got a genuine call to revitalization, I still wrestle with that today. Um, but, but my heart began breaking for revitalization. For example, probably my second, um, call or not, um, I wasn't ordained, so we'll just call it job. Okay. My second job in youth ministry, I took over a church, uh, the youth group had dwindled down to five kids. It grew to about 50, you know, so that was kind of a revitalization effort as well. Uh, when we went to seminary, I appreciate you you saying that you know, I've got a good heart. Um, I, but in seminary, I feel like 
there was a little bit of arrogance that drove me to revitalization initially. And it was like this. When, when we were in seminary, I didn't work for a church because there were a lot of churches around the area that were kind of looking for a youth guy. And, I, you know, I guess kind of in my arrogance, I thought, oh, I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. But one of our professors, Dr. Kick, he had me, he had me preach a lot while we were in seminary. Uh, probably preached on average probably twice a month the whole time we were in seminary. So I was half the time at our home church and then half the time I was out preaching. But you know, I went from being kind of an associate guy at a church of about 300, 350 to now I'm going back into, you know, into a more confessional church. And so the only churches we let guys in training in seminary preach at, you know, are the dying ones, you know? <laughs> so, you know? So on average, I'm preaching to these churches that have like 10, 15, 20 people in them. And, uh, I don't want to be, I don't want to come, I don't want to be self-righteous, but I remember, I remember a particular conversation in a seminary class break. I remember a guy kind of charting his course for the next 20 years, like during a break. And he was talking about how he had received a call to this church. He was going to be an associate there. And then he was going to, you know, climb up to be, you know, the senior pastor there, which is great if that's what God moves. But then I felt convicted to say, not all of us are going to follow that path. Some of us may be called to take on some dying works and 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 just see what God can do. And so for me, I really began getting just my heart started breaking for all these small dying churches uh, that um, that some of them couldn't afford a pastor. Some of them maybe could, but even if they could afford a pastor, no one wanted to go there uh, because it was like this was a, they were damaged goods. And so that, that's kind of how God began breaking my heart for revitalization. And that's really how I ended up in the ARP because, you know, we have a lot of churches that need a revitalization. You know? it's, it's interesting you say that because you're part of the reason I'm in revitalization myself is – you know, most of the guys coming out of seminary are want to take, uh, you know, thriving churches or, or you're going to be a church planner. And I remember talking to you and you in, in, in your house, your apartment at the time and and kind of casting that vision earlier on a guy like me, the importance of going to some of these churches that that are dying. And um, not that mine was as 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 uh, as in such a state as some of the ones you entered. You were more aggressive on that end, I guess, but uh, just the the heart to see what can God do because God cares for his church. God loves his bride, and we're so quick to just deem a church dead rather than we believe in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do we believe in the power of resurrection of Jesus Christ in his church? And yeah. I think that's uh, one of the things you really poured into me in those early years of seminary. And so, you know, personally, I say thank you to you. That's why I wanted to have you on the show is because I, I think your heart for revitalization is huge. But not just that. I mean, you've experienced the heartbreak of what happened in Asheville. And you are now experiencing some of the, the, the good times of success there at Hopewell. And yet you're doing it in a r- rural context which for a lot of people is, you know, does the rural church even need to exist? Yes. And in fact, we were reading statistics in Michigan where the rural context is one of the most neglected because everybody just assumes it's Christian. But in our, in our rural area, heroin is one of the greatest epidemics. <laughs> and uh, the need for people to be reengaged with the gospel is, is paramount. And so we desperately see the need in the rural context. And here you are doing it 
in a uh, in in kind of if you will the the TV capital of rural America, right? And uh, what a beauty uh, of a, a beautiful opportunity you have to display the grace of God in 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 the picture of of uh, the resurrection hope. Absolutely, and, and I'm glad you hit on the key of the resurrection because I think that's really part of theologically what drives me about my passion for revitalization. I was preaching Second uh, Corinthians chapter one on last Sunday, where Paul talks about despairing even of life itself, but he talks about God who raises the dead. And so, you know, only God can raise the dead. You know, only God has the resurrection power. And you go into a dying church, you know, this is a futile, worthless effort unless the Holy Spirit moves. And there's, there's something freeing about that, but there's also something scary about that. I mean, when, when you begin to see a church go from 25 to 50 to 75, I mean, I, there are some Sundays, I mean, a shake. You, you kind of begin to shake and tremble and say, okay, Holy Spirit's moving here. And, and you begin analyzing the own sin in your own life and, and you know, begin having that Isaiah experience all again. You know, woe is me. I, I, you know, I, I'm not to be here. And I'll be honest with you, it's very important. One, one advice, uh, I don't feel like I have a lot of wisdom, but one piece of wisdom I feel like I would share with some guys is that church planting is really cool. It's trendy. It's sexy. You know, there's a lot of push in, in a lot of denominations, and rightly so, to go to the epicenters, you know, go to downtown Atlanta. You know, that's where CNN Center is. And there are some guys, that's where God calls them to. That's what they're equipped to do. But I, I I hate downtown areas. I mean I, I mean, <laughs> I try to avoid Atlanta. You know what I mean? I go there for a hospital call. So it took me ten years to realize God has not wired me to live in a downtown epicenter and enjoy it. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm I'm, but I enjoy the rural life. I, I crack up that I had to herd cattle five times last week. You know, I mean, I mean to me it's comical. You know, uh, but not everybody's wired to do that. And you know, so one of the ways I always say it is, you know, church planning is sexy, but revitalization is like being married to the old lady with warts. You yeah. just pray you fall in love with her, you know, yeah. and, <laughs> and uh, yet there's benefits to revitalization. You, you have resources, whether it's a church like Asheville where it had a million dollars and it's a shame the budget they put together because you think of what God could have done. Um, on the reverse side, you, you, you see not only the resources, but there's also bumps. There, there's, you, you have your boss elders. You have your things you have to work through. There's cultural uh, indifference, and there's a reason why it's a dying church. And so it takes the right guy. And so if you had a moment just to speak to the guys out there that would even consider revitalization compared to planting, what would you say to them? Uh, expect a long, hard road. Um, you would have to be patient. Um, but what you'll find is, as a pastor, as you think about all the things and the changes you want to see in the church and in the life of the people, what God is also going to simultaneously do is God is going to use those people and that setting to help change you for the better. And, and, and you know, sand down some razor sharp edges and to round you out more to be the man of God that he wants you to become. 
Church planning is about our sanctification too, is, is what I hear you saying, and I'm fully yeah. with you, because God is not uh, using perfect guys to revitalize. He's He's using re- revitalization to make us more perfect, and through the process of sanctification, as well as the church itself. And Absolutely. Yeah. Tanner, is there is there some books or some resources you would suggest to guys who are considering replanting revitalization? Hmm. Right now, he's looking around his library. Yeah, and I mean, I'm in my wife's scrapbooking office, so I just see like Hello Kitty posters. <laughs> Here's what I would say: be easy on yourself, because theoretically, none of the churches that the Apostle Paul planted exist today, as far as I know. And so, every church has a life a life cycle and a shelf life. You know, just be realistic about that. There's a time and a season for everything, you know. That's a good word, brother. Um, I know that there may be guys who want to reach out to you and just uh, uh, contact you through email or, or whatever. Is there a way that they could do that? Could you share that with us, or your church website or whatever? Uh, yeah, probably my email would be the easiest way uh, to do that. Uh, and then if we connect that way, I'd be you know, be happy to, to talk on the cell phone with some guys. Um uh, we don't actually have a church website up yet. I know that you find that hard to believe considering my my computer still has Windows Vista on it. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, it, it's all lowercase. It's Klein, C-L-I-N-E dot Tanner, T-A-N-N-E-R at gmail.com. So Klein.Tanner at gmail.com. Be happy to, to correspond, be, you know, any source of help, encouragement uh, that I can be. Well, all right. Thank you, Tanner. And uh, we appreciate your ministry. And we're just asking God to continue to bless you. And to all our listeners, we'll catch you next week. Have a good week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com. Be sure to like our Facebook page.